There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. She got a large grant from the Department of Energy and they were growing blood cells from divers in this pressure chamber. You'll have heard in episode four, Dr. Brenda Page's family and friends telling me what they knew about her work as an escort. But she was first and foremost a well-respected academic at the University of Aberdeen. Just 32 years old when she was murdered, Brenda was a scientist in the university's medical school. A project she was working on at the time had a direct connection to the North Sea oil industry. Brenda was working on a project exploring the potential health risks of deep-sea divers working in the North Sea. Diving had been a, a leisure pursuit for most up until that time. Suddenly it became a critically important element of establishing wells in the North Sea. There was a rush to get the oil ashore as quickly as possible in the early days of the oil industry. Divers were often working in dangerous conditions. I do know that we have had some very strange casualties also in Norway with regard to people who have involved themselves in the deep sea divers. Did the research Brenda was involved in put her in danger? This is Murder in the Granite City. And I'm journalist Ruth Warrender. When Brenda arrived in Aberdeen in 1973, the city was in the throes of the North Sea oil boom. Brenda worked in the University of Aberdeen's medical school, next to Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. She was a principal cytogeneticist, specialising in the study of chromosomes. Her area of expertise was prenatal diagnosis in expectant mothers. It was cutting-edge research. She was very, very good at having ideas on things. Something would come up diagnostically and she'd say, why don't we do this, you know? She was quite good at being able to get research grants. She got my research grant. She got that particular research grant for the diving project. Yeah, she was an excellent scientist and full of bright ideas. Brenda was researching the long-term health risks affecting deep-sea divers working in the North Sea. Jessie told me more about her research. The diving project was something that arose out of our routine diagnostic work. Um, One of the divers had a triploid baby. Triploid syndrome is a condition that develops at conception and babies are born with an extra set of chromosomes. A triploid is a very abnormal and very unusual thing. And Brenda had the bright idea, a very bright idea, that maybe the deep-sea diving, the pressure, had something to do with this. But it wasn't her herself. She had another student working on that at the time. 
I'm Dr. James Douglas. Um, I'm a general practitioner in Port William in the Highlands of Scotland. I'd qualified as a, as a young doctor in, the, in Aberdeen uh, in 1975. And um, after my first hospital jobs, I started doing a research year at the Institute of Offshore and Environmental Medicine, which was based in the medical school at Forrester Hill in Aberdeen. Dr. Douglas was the student who worked with Brenda on her project back in the 70s. The purpose of that research institute was to consider the risk of people working in the new offshore oil industry at that time, which was the new industry which was powering the economy in Aberdeen and also in, in the whole of the UK. And there were concerns with on a number of fronts that uh, people working in that industry were putting themselves at some, some sort of undue risk. And somebody from the uh, maternity hospital in Aberdeen contacted the department and the professor in the department because they'd noticed in the maternity hospital in Aberdeen that the partners of divers, in other words, divers' wives or female partners, seemed to be having a higher rate of miscarriage. And also there'd been a couple of babies who'd been born with congenital malformations to the partners of divers. And so the question was raised within the department, was this an effect? Did anybody know about this before? And was this something that had to be anticipated in the local medical community? So Dr. Douglas had worked with Brenda on her research project. I asked him when they first met. I can still remember very clearly the first meeting with Dr. Brenda Page, which took place in early 1977 at the medical school in Forrester Hill. Uh, the meeting was in one of the meeting rooms upstairs, and uh, there were only three people in the room. There was Professor Nelson Norman, myself, and Dr. Brenda Page, so I'd never met her before. Uh, she was an attractive young woman. Um, she was about five years older than me, so she was kind of like the senior person in the professional relationship. And she recently, relatively recently, been appointed to this new department because genetics at that time was the new science, and understanding chromosomes and DNA was clearly of big interest generally in medicine. And uh, her appointment was all part of the process of trying to understand that uh, area of medical science. So we discussed the problem which had been raised by the maternity hospital. And we then started to talk about if this was true, then what would be the mechanism? Would it be sort of bubbles in the blood that were somehow affecting the diver's testicles and their sperm? What could be the reason for getting genetic damage uh, in divers' sperm? So the obvious way of studying that would be to get samples of divers' sperm and then look at it under the microscope. And we decided between the three of us that that was going to be uh, not feasible. How would we get samples, fresh samples from divers when they were out, out in the North Sea? Brenda Page suggested, could we use their uh, white blood cells, their peripheral T lymphocytes, as a proxy measure um, of uh, damage to chromosomes. And she had a technique where she could culture the uh, white blood cells and the chromosomes and then look at the blood cells under the microscope and then um, see whether there was any damage to the chromosomes um, in the blood. To understand more about the work of deep sea divers, I got in touch with Jake Malloy from the National Union of Rail and Maritime Workers, the RMT. That's the union that represents divers in the oil industry. Jake's the regional officer in Aberdeen, and I went to his office to meet him. The first thing I wanted to know was, were divers working in dangerous conditions 
in the early days of the North Sea oil industry. Yeah, it was an extremely dangerous place. Um, diving had been a, a leisure pursuit for, for most up until that time. Suddenly it became a critically important element of establishing wells in the, in the North Sea and at quite significant depths, really in, a, in an environment that they hadn't entered before and were working with equipment and off of vessels which, on reflection now, probably weren't fit for purpose. So it made it a very dangerous place indeed. Former Lord Provost of Aberdeen, Barney Crockett, worked in the oil industry in the 70s, and he told me a similar story. I was in my sort of uh, mid to late 20s when I uh, managed to get a job offshore, and uh, I was washing dishes and... Uh, preparing food in a, 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 an oil barge which had sunk twice before. Safety was a very low concern at that time. But the wages were a deal-breaker for Barney. It was not uh, a wonderful wage, but it was a lot more than you would get uh, on shore for the similar kind of work. So, but obviously uh, the dangers involved. I mean, you know, the ship had sunk, the barge had sunk <laughs> twice. I mean. Well, I think that, one, that is what takes people aback. I mean, just how little safety... Uh, there was. I have to be careful what I say now because literally younger people in the oil industry don't believe. Uh, you know, they think you're making up stories when you tell them about what it was like. But it was a totally different uh, scenario than you have it today. I mean, health and safety in the oil industry is absolutely famous. I mean, for its uh, high levels, but that wasn't at all the case in the early days. Uh. And I don't know if you knew, but Brenda had actually been asked by the government to research the safety elements of oh, deep-sea yeah. divers. Oh, wow. So would oil industries wow. not be quite concerned about what she would maybe find out? Well, I risk, I mean, it, it does impinge <laughs> yeah. directly on what I was doing. I was washing dishes on a diving barge in what we'd now consider, I mean, it was very, very dangerous situation for the divers. I would have to go with food for them, which was quite funny because there was no proper walkway on the deck or anything like that. I got hit by waves and, you know, nearly fell off. Unlike the oil industry today, it seems that health and safety wasn't high up on the list of priorities then. What was more important was getting the oil ashore, fast. Hamish Peterson is managing director of KD North Sea Diving Company in Aberdeen now. But in the 70s, he was a deep sea diver and helped to install and repair rigs in some of the biggest oil fields. Hamish was very well paid for his work. We were all young people getting involved in a, a Klondike, you know, a big adventure, going out there, making lots of money. You could do a 12-week course and suddenly get access to this sort of rock star pay. I mean, you would get about six or seven thousand pounds for your month. And if a two-bedroom flat in Aberdeen at the time was about two thousand pounds. So you could buy a couple of flats just for a month's pay. So conditions were dangerous, but divers could earn an unbelievable wage. Rock star pay, as Hamish said. Alec Kemp Professor of Petroleum Economics at the University of Aberdeen told me the price of oil rocketed in the 70s. In terms of the economics of the oil activity, the price of the oil is a very important element. And the Fortis field was discovered when the price was about $2 a barrel. Then everything changed again when 
1973, the Yom Kippur War uh, came along, uh, and um, uh, Arab members of OPEC were very unhappy because uh, America in particular was uh, supporting Israel. The Yom Kippur War, or the October War, took place in the Middle East. Egypt and Syria fought against Israel. The Arab oil-producing countries of OPEC, that's the organisation of petroleum-exporting countries, were not happy about America's support for Israel. So they reduced their oil production and forced an embargo, suspending oil supply. And this led to a major hike in the price of oil worldwide. Within a year, 73, 74, it went up 400%. So that, of course, gave a further boost to uh, uh, exploration in the North Sea uh, because uh, the companies uh, could see that, that even with the very high costs, the activity would be profitable. So um, that meant that there was an agreement with uh, the companies and with the UK government that getting to early oil as quickly as possible was the most important thing to do. There was a big worry about security of supply. We were issued with uh, petrol coupons at that time uh, as an indicator of uh, uh, how uh, worried uh, the nation was and the politicians were about security of supply. The UK government relied heavily on imported oil and it was so concerned about the supply, petrol was rationed. So no wonder they wanted to get oil ashore from the North Sea as quickly as possible. But did that mean that safety was compromised? The safety aspects were uh, uh, recognised, but the policy measures to deal with them all, uh, uh, all the issues, were quite slow to come. I still can't believe how much Hamish Peterson could earn as a diver in the 1970s. But did the conditions he was working in justify his rock star pay. So what you, what you do is you live in a pressure complex, uh, so you're a big steel tank. You stay in there and people lock in food and, 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 and things to you. Uh, and then part of the day you get into another pressure capsule called a diving bell and it's lowered to the depth that you want to work at. And then you work there for six to eight hours and then you come back and go back and, and stay and sleep in, in the uh, in the chamber, in the living chamber. So that's a, a repeat process. You do that for about a month, and then you do a decompression at the end of the month. And that saves you decompressing after every dive. Because diving at significant depths, like four or 500 feet, it takes a week to decompress. So you can't do that every day or every dive. It would be unreasonable to do. So saturation was a, a technique to allow people to do significant work without decompressing every day. Jake Malloy told me more about what the saturation technique involves. Well, the, the pressures which you experience on the body at that depth of, of 300 feet are, are quite significant and your body has to be... It has to be cleared of normal breathing air and instead a, a gas, in most cases a, a helium-nitrox mix is used for breathing in order to deflect the pressure which you, you feel when you're working at those depths. So the, you spend, depending on how deep you're going, a day or several days compressing, slowly but surely, 
moving from normal pressure air into this gaseous mixture, mixed gas process, until you reach the depth at which you're going to be working. You then move from this steel chamber into a, what we call a diving bell, and the bell then is pressurised to the same pressure and takes you onto the seabed, and you, you go about your work. Spending today normally a, a six-hour period working. Years ago it was eight, sometimes ten, maybe even twelve. Um, and then you return to the bell, which then takes you back to your saturation chamber. Normal dives, you're there for 28 days. Um, and then you go through what's termed a decompression process, another six, eight, ten days slowly bringing your body back to atmospheric pressure so that you can go back to normal living. It's that whole compression process and decompression process which, if it's not done right, can have serious consequences on the body. Um, so it's a very, very dangerous environment to, to live and work. Um, an error in setting the pressures within that confined chamber can kill you at a stroke if you decompress or compress too quickly the consequences are fatal Brenda's research focused on finding out if this compression and decompression process had an effect on their partner's pregnancies did it damage a baby's chromosomes it was harrowing to find out what happened to divers working in the Norwegian oil industry in the early days? The, the risks were all too apparent with what we call the frontier divers, the divers in, in Norway who went to quite significant depths um, beyond that which had been done in the, in the UK sector at least. Um, I met some of these divers over the last 10 years and it's a tragic, tragic case. Um, most of them are if they're still alive, are, are crippled um, as a consequence of the, the extreme pressures um, and the process for compressing and decompressing. Um, it puts terrible strain on not just the, the vital organs of the body, but also the, the bone and the bone marrow. In their cases, most of them have suffered quite significantly in terms of Mobility, uh, their bones are, if they've not already broken down to the point that they can't support the bodies anymore, then they're heading in that direction. So um, invariably, like every other accident and tragedy that we had in the diving sector, we only learn by mistake and, and every mistake seems to lead to someone suffering in some way. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So, deep-sea diving could have devastating effects on divers' health. In 2013, the European Court of Human Rights found the Norwegian government guilty of not giving divers enough information about the level of danger they face in their work. The oil and gas boom of the 70s has since been described as a Wild West frenzy. Former lawyer Marius Reikeras represented divers claiming compensation for their injuries in a court case, which was unsuccessful. He's alleged that people who've spoken out against the Norwegian government have died in mysterious circumstances. And he suggested that Brenda's research may have put her at risk. But he has a colourful past and has since lost his licence to practice law. Marius works as a human rights counsel now and I caught up with him for a chat on the phone when he had just left a hearing at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. With him was a former frontier diver, Albert Johnson. Hello? Is that Marius? Hey, yeah, this is me. You hear me well? Hi, yeah, I can hear you fine. It's Ruth. I'm the journalist doing the podcast about the murder of Dr. Brenda Page. Um, are you okay, okay to talk now? Um, we're fine to talk. I'm sitting here with Mr. Albert Johnson, who's uh, the number one expert on deep sea diving in Norway. So we're, we're together. Okay, so can I address this question to both of you, please? So, I know, Marius, you've said in the past, in the press, that you believe Dr. Page's research may have been a factor in her murder. Can you explain why you said that? Well, what I specifically said was that I can see a link between what happened with a lot of the people who involved themselves in the deep-sea diving and for the deep-sea divers and with Dr. Page. I was not familiar with Dr. Page before I was presented that case by a journalist in Scotland. But I, I do know that we have had some very strange casualties also in Norway with regard to people who have involved themselves in the, in the deep-sea divers. Uh, we had this judge who was appointed by the Norwegian government back in 2003 to to lead this um, investigation group. And this judge concluded back in, uh, I think, March 2003 that uh, the divers were entitled to compensation from the Norwegian state since the Norwegian state did not carry out sufficient decompression tables for the divers. In September 2003, he was 
allegedly found drowned outside the outside the coast of New York City. And then only a month later, on October 8, 2003, one of the key advisors for the group to divers was found dead in Oslo due to the alleged drug abuse. However, we, the people who knew him told that he never was involved in any drugs. So it proved to me that there might be a connection between all these sudden casualties in Norway uh, with the fact that Brenda Page was killed as well. So Marius told me about various people supporting divers' compensation claims who he alleges have died in suspicious circumstances. He suggests that Brenda's death may be linked to what her research uncovered. Frontier diver Albert Johnston, who was with Marius, told me about his experiences. It seems like um, there has been a lot of resistance against some information. There was a competition to do the jobs as fast as possible. And it was uh, clear that the, the diving companies with the shortest and fastest compression tables, they got the contract. I asked Marius why he thought some oil companies used decompression tables that Albert claimed were not fit for purpose. It's obvious that this is a question about money. The government they obviously took a risk. It was a question, should we sacrifice the health and the lives of the divers because there was a tremendous amount of money? And keep in mind that at that time, Norway was a very poor country. We have statements from back from 1974 saying that Norway was on the brink of being bankrupt at that time. So they took that risk because of the, the great potential richness that could come to Norway as a society. So if, it was uh, happening in, so if it was happening in Norway, do you think it was also happening in UK waters and to UK divers? I truly believe so. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of the uh, financial uh, situation in, in UK at that time, but I presume the, the situation was quite equal to Norway. Yeah, I mean, there was a pressure on the oil companies, the pressure on the government. The UK government was in disarray, three-day week. We had a huge energy problem here. Norway was similar. Divers are not the oil industry. They're a very small part of it. They're a little bit in the corner. Former diver Hamish Peterson wasn't concerned about the long-term health risks. No, not at all. Um, uh, The only thing that had been analysed a lot by uh, research had been... Uh, bone necrosis, which was a deep long bone uh, deterioration, and it was thought to perhaps have been exacerbated by diving. The huge amount of research that was done on working divers didn't come up with anything that suggested a diver had any more chance of getting bone necrosis than anybody else in society. The other long-term effects were, weren't really considered to be an, an issue. So what did Brenda's research reveal? I contacted the University of Aberdeen to find out if I could access her papers. A freedom of information request revealed that the university did not have them in their archive. So I sent another freedom of information request to the UK government and got this in reply. The Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy does not hold any information within the scope of your request. So neither the University of Aberdeen nor the government have a copy of Brenda's research papers. Had the research ever been completed? 
Here's Dr. James Douglas. So we managed to find somebody else who was willing to complete the research project with us. And so what happened was that we then, I then collaborated with this other researcher, a chap called Dr. Donald Fox, and we published our research in 1984 in a, in a journal called Undersea Biomedical Research. So what did the research uncover? And what we found was that a small percentage of the divers had damage to their chromosomes. And to this day, we don't know what the cause of that is. My personal view of Brenda and and just her, her early death is it was such a tragedy on so many levels. First of all, Brenda was unusual in that she, she was young female and a scientist, so she was very much working in an area at that stage which was very much male-dominated. And she was she was the principal in charge of the lab um, at the university in Aberdeen. The other thing, if we're talking about when you were saying about motivations for the murder, you know, some dark conspiracy theory about oil industry trying to sort of stop finding any bad things, I think that's probably unlikely. And in fact, Dr. Douglas told me his research post was funded by an oil company. My post was actually in, in the department, was funded by Shell, so that, so they were uh, keen that, that if there were any problems that, that they were found with and dealt with. So um, I would counteract any idea that there was a big conspiracy going on with the, with the oil companies. Dr. Douglas told me his connection to Brenda wasn't only professional. And I was coming back from working in a shift in the A&E department and walking in the front path of my flat in 11 Allen Street. And to my surprise, going into the path in the other direction, in the flat in number 13 Allen Street, was Brenda Page. And there was a bit of a double take from both of us. Goodness me, Jim, what are you doing here? Goodness me, Brenda, what are you doing here? So as well as knowing Brenda professionally, as we were next door neighbours, Brenda was very good to myself and my wife, and um, she invited us to a party. And we got to know her socially. And at that stage at the party, um, we met her boyfriend at the time, who was an engineer from Edinburgh. It also became clear from general social interactions with Brenda, uh, mainly with conversations with my wife, that she had left a dysfunctional marriage with Christopher Harrison and that she was generally fearful of her husband at that time. And the next thing that happened was that I was working on my car outside the flat in Allen Street one beautiful summer's day in June 1978. I had my car up on a jack when I was conscious that there was a large stooping figure looking down on me and I kind of like rubbed down my hands on my trousers and said, oh, I better not shake your hand because I've, I've, my hands are full of, full, of, full of rust. And that momentary glance down to his hands showed that he, had, he was wearing uh, black leather gloves and uh, he introduced himself as, as Kit Harrison, that's what he called himself. And I then realized when he did that, that, that he wasn't really supposed to be there because Brenda had got exclusion orders against him being round about near the flat. He wanted to confirm my identity. He knew I was. Um, I wasn't really interested in getting involved in a conversation with him because I knew that he wasn't welcome in the area. The following weekend, my wife was home from hospital, uh, having been working as a nurse there and I wasn't at home, and Harrison came to the door of our flat. He was wearing gloves, and uh, he asked my wife if we wanted a kitten. 
No, fortunately, my wife said, thanks very much, but no thanks. But it was a bit of a strange thing to come knocking at the door and asking if we wanted a kitten. So describe to me when you actually found out about Brenda's murder. I was coming back from work one day after a shift at A&E, and there was a policeman standing at the entrance to uh, our flat. As I was looking over towards Brenda's flat, where the activity seemed to be, um, I recognised the Dr Bill Hendry, who was the police forensic pathologist coming out of the flat. Some point later in the evening, uh, the police came to, to speak to me and said, we think there's a, think that there's a murder next door, I think was the expression that they used when they said that it was the person that had been found dead was Dr. Brenda Page. Uh, they said, would I be willing to identify her? So I sort of said, yes. So, um, wow, so you, so you actually were tasked with actually identifying her body. Yes, correct. And although you were professionally trained um, to identify bodies, I mean, that must have been such a difficult task for you because you had built that relationship socially with Brenda also and, you know, you were working close with her at work. Absolutely. Unfortunately, that, that image of Brenda stayed with me for, for the past 40 or so years. Yes, it was a horrible sight. Having spoken to Brenda's colleagues, Dr. James Douglas and Dr. Jesse Watt, I'm certain that her murder had nothing to do with the groundbreaking research she was working on. Less than two years after Brenda's death, the police investigation came to an end in June 1980, and her murder was officially classified unsolved. But in 2015, the Crown Office in Scotland instructed police to reinvestigate the case. One of the reasons given was that forensic techniques had improved dramatically over the years. So could this hold the key to who killed Brenda? I always thought, well, they found something. They found DNA evidence. That's exactly what they want to have found. Join me next time to find out. Please help us spread the word on Brenda's story by rating, sharing and talking about this podcast. You can subscribe to hear other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in the Granite City is presented by me, Ruth Warrender, and produced by Jill Davis. Sound design is by Sean Kerwin and the music is composed and performed by David Hearn. It's a news broadcasting production for the Scottish Sun. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.